0: From the MGMA in-home studios, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams.
1: Research has found evidence of implicit bias based on gender, age, sexual orientation, ethnicity and race, religion, disability, appearance, and more in the general population. And experiments have further shown that our brains classify people by race in less than one-tenth of one second. It's less than 100 milliseconds, which which is about 50 milliseconds faster than categorization by gender. And it's subconscious. We don't know we're doing it, but it happens.
0: That's Jessica Ellis Wilson talking about implicit bias. We'll hear more from Jessica on developing strategies to test for and confront implicit bias in the workplace. But first, a word from our sponsors. Connecting 600 health plans to 1.3 million providers and over 100 million members to deliver electronic healthcare care payment reimbursements is what PaySpan does every day. PaySpan solutions are designed to help medical providers simplify patient payment processing and manage financial processes in a quick, convenient way right at the point of service. Learn more about how PaySpan can help deliver a better patient payment experience while optimizing practice financial management at Payspan.com. A proven payment solution for patients out-of-pocket cost, the Care Credit Health, Wellness, and Personal Care Credit Card gives cardholders a convenient way. To pay for treatments and procedures at locations in the Care Credit network, with promotional financing for purchases of $200 or more, cardholders can move forward with the care they need and want today, and make monthly payments over time. Learn more about how Care Credit helps providers deliver a better patient financial experience at carecreditcom MGMA podcast. Recent events have put the spotlight on some of the nation's most entrenched divides, resurfacing in the concepts of implicit bias, unconscious bias, and anti-bias. In this episode of the MGMA Insights podcast, Jessica Ellis Wilson, CMPE, and Principal, for practical management consulting breaks down what biases are, how they cause unconscious discrimination, and how the best leaders are aware of their own biases and have strategies to neutralize them and ensure an inclusive culture for staff, providers, and patients. Jessica, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Daniel, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Sure. Now, you recently spoke at the Management Practice Excellence Conference. You spoke on the topic of confronting our implicit biases. Um, briefly, if you don't mind, what what inspired you to research this topic and want to present it to healthcare leaders?
1: Yeah, so this has actually been an area of interest for me for a lot of years. Um, I really believe that until each of us reckons with our own implicit biases, we're going to keep repeating the same harmful patterns of hatred and intolerance, and I want to help us evolve our understanding of ourselves, of how we see the world and how we interact with others. I've actually been speaking professionally on this subject since way back in 1995, although uh, as I was serving full-time as a medical practice leader, I didn't really have a lot of time to spare for speaking. Now, though, as the events of the past few years really have shone a spotlight on some the of these issues, it's really never been more timely to talk about implicit bias.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, thanks for that. And. I, <sighs> you have such an interesting topic, and you and I have corresponded through email and further, you know, kind of dug into this. So I, over the course of this interview, I want to explore those major themes you're talking about, look at where we are societally, um, how that impacts the individual, how it impacts the workplace. But first, (laughs) just so we're clear with everything, and we really understand where you're coming from, if you don't mind defining some of the key uh, terms that you're gonna be using that regard bias, the different types of bias that that we're dealing with here?
1: Sure. So explicit biases are the ones that we know that we have. There are our conscious preferences. Implicit biases are like brain shortcuts. They're in everything we do and they're how we're able to navigate the world without constant cognitive overload. So our brains make assumptions based on patterns, past experiences, personal beliefs, and cultural and societal norms. And they can be really helpful and positive things, but they can also be harmful. Research has found evidence of implicit bias based on gender, age, sexual orientation, ethnicity and race, religion, disability, appearance, and more in the general population. And experiments have further shown that our brains classify people by race in less than one-tenth of one second. It's less than 100 milliseconds, which, which is about 50 milliseconds faster than categorization by gender. And it's subconscious. We don't know we're doing it, but it happens.
0: Why is that? What is in the brain that's doing that? And how, do we, how are we able to, uh, I guess, test that? How, how have scientists found out that we're actually doing that within <laughs> that, that really just snap of the fingers time frame that you're talking about?
1: So there's, there's a lot of research out there. It would take us way more than the time we have allotted for this podcast to really talk about it. But the, the short answer is that, you know, the most, some of the most primitive parts of our brain, which is the amygdala, um, sends out something that we interpret as fear or challenge when we are uh, exposed to people or things that we perceive as different than ourselves. And so that sort of subconscious fight or flight Response causes us to be uncomfortable, and that sort of seeds in the cultural norms that we've been exposed to. So, if you live in an area where you are, which is, let's say, you live in an area that's primarily white, I live on Cape Cod, Massachusetts, which is 94% white. Mm -hmm. Um, If, as a child growing up, if you are not exposed to people of other races, then when you're first exposed to it, you know, as a, as an older child, a late teen and early adult, your brain sends out that signal, Um, which is why things like uh, making sure that we have diversity in media and diversity in the narratives that we expose people to on a regular basis, whether through our school curriculums, whether through our our popular media, whatever it may be, that people are exposed to outside perspectives so that they are able to not sort of overcome that amygdala response.
0: Mm-hmm. I think we've all heard that, you know, the term colorblind. So I, I think based <laughs> on what you're telling me is That is inaccurate. That we are not actually colorblind. That our brain, in that reptilian part, that most primitive or basic part of the brain, it is processing information immediately when we meet someone. It is processing information
1: regardless of whether we are consciously aware of it. And uh, there's a lot of really well-intentioned people who truly believe um, it when they say things like, "I don't see color." Mm-hmm. but unless you are one of the, you know, 8% of men or 0.5% of women who are colorblind, um, <laughs> you see color <laughs> yes. and, you know, and, and you, you process it whether you're aware of it or not. You see gender and you process it whether you're aware of it or not, um, which sometimes speaks to why there are these cultural, stereotypes against people who don't conform to these things. Mm -hmm. If you can't, if your brain can't immediately classify someone, it causes cognitive dissonance, which can really sort of, a lot of people can't handle cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So it makes them uncomfortable and it makes them not want to interact. And so, you know, these sort of marginalized identities are further marginalized because they're just pushed away and continuously labeled as other. Mm-hmm. So we have, to, we have to recognize that we see it and then deal with the, rep, the repercussions of that. Okay, I, I recognize that my brain sees race. I recognize that my brain sees gender or whatever else it might be. How do I make sure that I really am behaving in ways that are consistent with what I believe, which is that everyone is equal? Mm-hmm. Um and that's that's really sort of the first step in how do you get to really dismantling the effect our biases have on our on us.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're making my brain go uh uh <laughs> 100 miles an hour over here as I'm processing some information. And I read an article just this past week that and I I promise you right now I'm going to try to not do this behavior but it said that men uh mm-hmm interrupt women when they're speaking at a much higher rate than they interrupt other men and so gosh I'm going to guard myself during this interview but um why is that yeah. what is going on because as the article I was reading was explaining it's for the most part it's not conscious we're not going oh my gosh this woman's talking I'm gonna speak over her it's just it's something that's being processed there in the brain. And so it's kind of taking over. What, what is happening in that, in that instance?
1: So there's, there's a lot of potential factors for that, but it's really fascinating because yes, the research shows that men interrupt. And in fact, the research shows that men tend not to listen when women are speaking to such an extent that if a woman makes a suggestion or a point It may not be reacted to, and then a man later on in the same meeting can make the same exact suggestion or point and be lauded for it. It's really fascinating. And in fact, there was some research done in Australia um, where they took a look at college classes um, where the professors were instructed to encourage participation, um, the verbal participation in the class. And then they measured, the researchers measured, how many minutes spoken by women and by men, and also how many words spoken. So there were two metrics of you know, how many words were spoken and also how, many, how much time was taken up. And in every instance, men talked more. And yet, when the, the students themselves were surveyed, Men perceived, the women were pretty on target with their perception of how much women were speaking versus men were speaking in the class. But the men perceived that the discussion was equal when women talked thirty percent of the time.
0: Um, I'm, I'm doing fact, my they, best they, 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 to not they... interrupt you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: it's it's so it's so fascinating, and yes. and there's there's all kinds of of cultural and societal and, and personal biases that kind of come into play with this from you know, the, the perception of men as leaders versus women as caretakers right on through. Um, because there's nothing that says that a caring person, a care, you know, leaders are actually inherently caretakers, right? Our job as leaders is not to be in charge. It is to take care of those in our charge. That's our that Simon sinek said that that's that's the the role of a leader, and yet we we have these cultural perceptions that are rooted in you know lots and lots of things again that you know we could spend hours dismantling you know the the concepts of patriarchy but
0: <laughs> yeah well i I threw that one at you and i I really appreciate it and i I want to ask you before we get deeper into some of these different topic areas though but it's so fascinating to hear you talk about the human brain and the way it 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 reacts and responds and processes so i wanted to put it in perspective of 2020 this is i say this a lot i sound like a broken record sometimes but it's what i believe it's a it's a year like no other that we've experienced um and it's it's stretched us, it's challenged us, it's um really <laughs> put us under a tremendous amount of stress and 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 chaos in a lot of different ways. What has it done to bias what is ha- has there been any research or your research on your own to see what this has done to, you know we have been living in isolation in in many cases if we're not someone who's, you know, needs to be in, back in the workforce. We've been able to, uh, work at our desk at home. And so has this exacerbated the problem or what, what has it done?
1: So, yeah, there, there hasn't obviously been a ton, you know, there's a lot of research that's happening, but there hasn't been a a ton of stuff that's published yet. Um, because research takes time. Um, but, it really has, from what we can see, exacerbated the problem. And because when we limit social contacts and we limit our exposure to other people, what we're left with is, you know, sort of our, our immediate inner circle, which is often minimally diverse. It's people who look sound and think like us because it's usually either our family or our, our closest, closest uh, associates, you know, our closest, closest friends. So we, we, 2020 has really sort of deepened these sort of echo chambers that we are in naturally. We're in it because the algorithms of social media show us posts that are similar to our own. We, we are in these these really sort of isolation chambers physically and mentally and societally societally and it's going to really, it's going to really be, you know, for me, fascinating for a lot of people, a little bit, I think scary to sort of emerge from that when we finally have a vaccine and, and control over this, this pandemic to say, how do we, how do we interact in a world now? Because we are, you know, back to normal, quote unquote, is is off the table, right? Normal was bad for a lot of people. And so we need to figure out what this world is going to look like as we start to emerge back into it.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to go deeper then into implicit bias, um, some of the issues that we have there uh you've written and talked about the dangers of it um how it can cause harm in the workplace in our lives i guess as individuals break some of those down for us and why um what is it doing to us how does it hold us back as as colleagues as you know just citizens whatever however you want to define it
1: all right so So where implicit biases become harmful is when they influence our attitudes, our decisions, our behaviors, without cognitive awareness. Because our biases tend to reflect these cultural and societal norms, that often, when we're not aware of them, it results in harm to those with marginalized identities. So for example, 67% of adults report they're uncomfortable speaking with someone with a disability. Women and minorities are consistently given lower performance ratings and lower salary ranges for the same quality of work. And we like, as I said, we like to surround ourselves with those that we identify with or those that we want to emulate. And that excludes those we perceive as other because they make us uncomfortable. So it, it influences the world in so many insidious ways that we don't necessarily realize it you know you think about when you walk into a toy store how are the toys divided
0: Uh, they're in boys and girls gender wise or age or right i'm trying to remember
1: right and and so they're 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 separated by age of development you know especially developmental toys mm-hmm. but the biggest divide right is there's a boys section and there's a girls section mm-hmm. and where do you go if you want a soccer ball
0: I would, boys section or uh, i'm not you sure, go to the boys or, section where, where, okay right okay.
1: right but but the women's u.s soccer team are the reigning fifa women's world cup champions Mm-hmm the U.S. men's team didn't even qualify for the last FIFA World Cup. I mean, and that's a whole other thing. The men play the FIFA World Cup and the women play the women's World Cup, mm-hmm. which again, you know, reinforces male as default. Um, so, you know, that's a that's a simple, silly way, because of course, you know, at any age, gender should not define what toys you play with. You know, if you want a toy kitchen, you have to walk into the girls section. And yet 97% of the Michelin starred restaurants in the world are run by men, executive chefs. <laughs> you know, so it really makes no, you know, these these sort of arbitrary boxes make no sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and And when we look at things like I had another great example and it just ran right out of my head. But, you know, we, we think of these things and, and we don't even realize, you know, it doesn't, doesn't occur to us that, it, that it's a bias mm-hmm. because it's become a cultural norm. And yet, you know, it made a big deal, right, when, um, it, it, when Barack and Michelle Obama were doing their, uh, jet, their toy sorting with the Marines for Toys for Tots. It's a big mm-hmm. thing that, you know, most of the past presidents have done. And Barack Obama took a softball set, you know, a baseball set and put it in the girls section mm-hmm. because his daughters enjoyed playing baseball, you know, and it, it caused a, a, a real conversation about, you know, the role of gender in toys and and things like that. So mm-hmm. it it really, it's all around us. It's all the time. And we really have to start to, think about things in a different way to get to the bottom of, you know, is this something because that's the way, you know, that's the way the world is, or is it just the way that that's just the way we perceive the world because of all of these factors?
0: Mm -hmm. Let's talk about those biases that we have that we're, they're there, but maybe we don't Not completely in touch with them. They're somewhere lurking under the surface. So how do we create self-awareness in this area? How do we improve ourselves, evolve as you were talking about earlier?
1: Yeah. So the first question a lot of people ask is how do we know we have, you know, I don't even, I don't think I have any biases. Mm -hmm. I hear that a lot when I (laughs) I give talks. And and the answer, the easy answer to that is everybody has biases. (laughs) Like We literally could not function as humans without them. Um, At any given moment, we're exposed to about 11 million pieces of information and we can cognitively, functionally process about 40 of them. So without biases we would be on over, cognitive overload all the time and so how we and we have to remember again that implicit biases can and and often do run counter to what we consciously believe we can honestly and truly believe and espouse equality and equity for all people and yet still behave in ways that are biased or discriminatory and never even realize it so you know, how we, we have to identify them within ourselves, and then we have to work to mitigate the effect. And there's lots of ways that we can do that. We're going to, you know, talk about a few of those today, but, you know, again, way more than we can, that it would take hours and hours and hours. I've literally been researching and, and reading about this for 30 years, and I'm still learning new things, which is, you know, which is a fun and, and fascinating thing, but it's also, it can be daunting to somebody who's just starting out. It just feels like, oh my God, well, we all have them and they're everywhere and they're in everything. And then there's just, there's nothing I can do. And, you know, you just kind of throw your hands up and go, I, like, I don't even know where to start, you know? And mm-hmm. so we just have to, first we have to identify them. So the easiest, best way to identify them is to take, harvard's implicit association test so harvard's P- project implicit it's been going for years now it's free it's online um, it's easy to use it's not perfect but it is the it's the most widely used widely studied and statistically accurate implicit bias tests that they've been able to design um, and you can take it anonymously. Each module takes between eight and 12 minutes. So it's not a huge time investment and you can take them repeatedly and you can view your results immediately. You know, you don't have to give your email. You don't have to sign up for anything. It's a, it's a really low stake investment of time and and energy. And you can take, you know, there's, there's dozens and dozens of modules that you can take. Um, I recommend starting with the societal um, side of it, if you look at the, if you go to Project Implicit and you look at the page, it's the left-hand side, and you can, you know, just proceed as a guest and take the tests. But you can take, you know, you can find out if you hold implicit bias on all kinds of things, on race, on gender, on weight, on disability, on, you know, religion, all, all sorts of of different factors, and it can give you a good starting point of, okay, I, you know, it shows I have an implicit bias about race. So now what do I do about it? Right. So then, Mm -hmm. you know, you can kind of focus one at a time. I don't recommend that people go in and take, all of the modules at once, you know, take a a half day and, and do all of them. Don't because again, you're going to be overwhelming. You're gonna be like, well, I'm biased about everybody. I hate everything and forget this. Right. And so (laughs) you really just have to kind of have a plan and focus, you know, and maybe it's gender that you want to focus on first. Maybe it's race, maybe it's, you know, and, and really sort of make that plan. How do I do this? And as you do it, you'll start to realize that it, you can make these habits that will start to lessen the hold that implicit bias has on your decisions, your thoughts, your actions. And it's much, much easier than to start to see the bias in other areas. And then you can start, you can work to really start to mitigate it. You know, one, one drawback um, with the implicit association test though, is that when you go back and you read take the test. Your results can vary widely. So you can take the test and it can show, let's say, a slight preference. And then you do all this work and you go back and you take it, but you're having a bad day that day. And it shows you have a, you know, a strong preference. And you're like, I did all this stuff and it didn't help. Um, That's not necessarily true. So your results can vary pretty widely from test to retest based on how stressed you are, lack of sleep, you know, being upset, being distracted, all of those types of things, all of those types of of situations will make your biases more prevalent and stronger, more um, able to impact your behaviors and your thoughts. So if you, you know, do some things and you take the test and it sh- isn't showing improvement, don't be discouraged. You know, give it a couple more weeks, give it a couple days even, and take it again, you know, and, and kind of track your progress over time, because one outlier um, result isn't necessarily indicative that it's not working for you. Um, it's also worth noting that because of the cultural socialization aspect, the societal and cultural norms of bias, it's possible to be negatively biased against a group that you yourself identify with and favorably biased towards a group that um, you don't belong to. And I know that seems counterintuitive, but it's true. So, you know, don't assume that just because you're a woman, you do not have a bias against women because you may, you know, don't assume that because you are um, somebody who is Jewish that you don't have a bias against Jewish people. It's really an, a fascinating way that our brains sort of absorb the cultural norms around us, even when they're not in our own best interests. One of the most glaring examples is is Adolf Hitler. You know, mm-hmm. he was the leader of a movement that preached tall, blonde, Aryan people, mm. and yet he himself was short uh, dark haired and of Jewish descent. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. <Good laughs> so way. it's
1: really like, <laughs> and yet, you know, it, it, they all followed him and it's about, you know, so it's it's really a very strong thing that our brain, you know, strong trick that our brains can play.
0: Mm-hmm. I wanted to go back to the Harvard uh, test you were talking about. What is, just so our listeners, we're going to put a, a link to it in our show notes, but I wanted to get you to repeat again um, the name of it. I don't know if you have a link. We can provide that for our listeners, but at least provide the, the name do. of it again so people can take that.
1: Yep. So um, the website is implicit.harvard.edu and it's called Project Implicit. It's the Implicit Association Test. So that's the the best measure that we have. And again, it's free online and there will be, we'll provide the link to everybody um, on the same uh, site that you're listening to the podcast on. So.
0: Okay. We've been talking about biases on the personal level. You know, how do I improve myself? How do I evolve? So to speak. Um, But I was curious about the organizational side of it. Can biases live within an organization or within that culture? Can it be systemic? Uh, what, are, what are your thoughts on that?
1: So the short answer is yes. Uh, bias can exist systemically within organizations. That's referred to as institutionalized bias and also within the cultural of an organization because culture reflects our own biases. So an example of institutional bias might be an attendance policy that penalizes sick call-outs, you know, a lot of organizations had, you know, I think many have evolved from it, but had policies that penalized you if you called out more than three times, called out sick more than three times in a quarter, on a, in a single quarter, right? That negatively disproportionately affects people with chronic illness or disability or someone who's a primary caregiver to someone with chronic illness or disability. Um, An example of organizational uh, culture bias would be dress codes, which often, you know, disproportionately target women. I remember working for one organization and I came in and my first job was to overhaul the policies and procedures and the dress code actually got down to the types of necklines that women could wear, you know, Uh, and, you know, it would never even occur to people to, to say men can't have, you know, specific necklines you know, part of that is, is the availability of fashion for men at the time. Right. Mm -hmm. But also it, you know, there's this policing of appearance, particularly when it comes to women, you know, and and how do we fix that in our organizations? We're all leaders that we're trying to, you know, bring our organizations forward and and position them well for future success. And we start by reckoning with our own biases, because culture is often first dictated by the leaders. And then we invite our teams to come along and work on themselves. It's important that the work is voluntary, let people self-select for the best buy-in. And we need to ensure, I mean, we need to ensure that, you know, our mission, our vision, our values reflect a commitment against bias, and that our policies and procedures reflect that commitment. But ultimately, it's the human factor that we have to work the hardest at, develop strong anti-bias trainings and programs, let people elect to join them, you know, and incentivize where you can hold them during working hours. But if we capitalize on the good intentions of the folks who want to be there and want to help make this change, they're going to be the best cheerleaders we will ever have. And they're going to move the needle on the organization as a whole.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, you brought, uh, you sent me an email, you brought up a few topics that I'd like to explore that really caught my attention. And one of, one of the comments you made, you said there's an intersection of empathy and implicit bias. What are you getting yes. out there? What, what is that intersection? What are, what are we looking at here?
1: So many of the tools that we talk about to combat bias, individuation, seeking out outside perspectives, active listening, they are also tools that increase empathy. You know, we think of empathy as a character trait, but it's really, it's a neurobiologically based competency that we can teach. People who rank high in empathy show fewer implicit biases than those who rank low in empathy, you know, which is, which is just fascinating. So you know the Dalai Lama said love and compassion are necessities, right? They're not luxuries, and without them, humanity will not survive. And I think that we can learn a lot from really looking at that intersection.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, in the research you you cited, you said there's a decline of empathy in the U.S., particularly in healthcare. Now that last part really got my attention because I think of healthcare workers as serving people, healing people, Um, but you're talking about the research has shown there's a decline of empathy. So, so spell that out, explain that to me so I can get a better understanding of that.
1: Yeah. So research shows that empathy is decreasing in the general population. The Scientific American um, published an article in mid-September that was titled, The U.S. Has an Empathy Deficit. And research has shown that medical school training in particular decreases students' empathy unless they are engaged in ongoing extensive empathy training. So we teach empathy in medical school, but it's usually like a one month rotation. You know, it's, it's, it's not built into the curriculum. And the problems compound over time. There was a, a University of Chicago study back in 2000, in in JAMA that found that primary care physicians missed 79% of emotional cues from patients that indicated the need for a compassionate response. And a Johns Hopkins study from 2017 found that 74% of healthcare providers in their ICU showed no evidence of compassion for patients or families. So we talk a lot about things like burnout in healthcare, right? Burnout is literally The absence of empathy and compassion. So, we, you know, we're it's a it's a problem we already recognize. We're just talking about it in different terms, because one of the ways that we talk about helping burnout is teaching how uh, physicians how to uh, show empathy and compassion, right? And and increasing that within themselves. And it's really we think of healthcare as this nurturing field but the reality is that we've moved very far away from that in turn, you know, we're, we're measuring RVUs and metrics and we're not measuring really routinely things like satisfaction and morale in patients, in staff, in providers. And when we do measure it, we don't necessarily know what to do about it when we find that it's low. Mm -hmm. Right. So we have to, we, we have to get back to, empathy and compassion.
0: Mm -hmm. What do we do then when we do see that it's low, if you've measured it, if you see that morale is low or there's just a disconnect there as far as empathy is concerned, do you bring the team together? Is there certain training or education that you can provide? What, What are the next steps?
1: Yeah, there's. I mean, there's. There's actually lots and lots of of good trainings out there specifically designed for healthcare. Cleveland Clinic has one. There's a whole organization in Boston called Empathetics, um, which is focused on teaching healthcare providers how to be more empathetic. Mm-hmm. Um, Stephen Treziac, Doctor Stephen Treziak, published a book last year called Compassionomics, uh, talking about the the need for compassion in healthcare and how. It's actually, you know, a measure of compassion that is driving our bottom lines in a lot of in a lot of um, circumstances. And his research is really fascinating. If anybody has a chance to, you know, really sit down and I highly recommend Compassionomics as a read. But you know, there's lots of tools out there. We just have to get organizationally. We have to commit the resources to doing them, mm-hmm. and then to fostering them because it's not a one and done. You know, creating empathy and and it, working against bias is it sounds cliche, but it's not a marathon it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Right. Mm-hmm. And it, it's we are constantly learning and constantly evolving and constantly, you know, re examining all of these things. And right. that goes for a lot of emotional intelligence stuff. And we love to, you know, a lot of leadership uh, models, particularly from, say, the 80s, like to downplay emotional intelligence, but it's incredibly important right. in, in everything that we do. Well,
0: thanks for that. And, and one more piece that you wrote me about is something you called emotional tax. Uh, you said an emotional tax is being levied by our current social, political, pandemic climate. Um, talk about that. What is that emotional tax, and and what do we mean by that?
1: Sure. So the the current thinking is that there is an emotional tax of about twenty five to thirty percent. That's that's on most of the world, quite frankly, but particularly in America, where you know politics are are volatile and and societal forces are volatile. It's twenty five to 30% emotional tax. And what that means is that we're all waking up about 25 to 30% more stressed at baseline than we were, say, at this time in 2019. And so, and the, you know, the thinking is also that that number might be even higher for those of us in healthcare, for people who are essential workers, who are, you know, going in every day, but particularly in healthcare, where we are dealing with, coronavirus on a, on a daily basis, many of us, and really, you know, having the health and wellness of our patients, our staff, our organizations, and in the case of hospitals, our communities sort of on our shoulders, it can be even higher. And so, you know, none of us have a lot of capacity for doing some of this work. Our tempers are shorter. You know, <laughs> we're we're more likely to, you know, again, be stressed, tired, upset, um, uncertain, afraid, and all of those things strengthen the hold that implicit bias has on us, and it decreases our ability to feel empathy for others. So it's sort of a perfect storm of all of these things are starting to change, but it's also a, a measure of why. So often, um, discourse with someone who believes differently than you feels like a fight instead of a discussion.
0: All right. Well, Jessica, this has been a wonderful conversation. I appreciate you hopping on the podcast with us and sharing these thoughts with us today.
1: Well, thank you so much for the invitation, it's been my absolute pleasure
0: that's going to do it for this episode of insights thanks to our guest jessica ellis wilson and thanks to payspan and to care credit for sponsoring this week's show learn more about how payspan can help deliver a better patient payment experience while optimizing practice financial management at payspan.com and learn more about how CareCredit helps providers deliver a better patient financial experience at carecredit.com slash MGMA podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. If you have topics you'd like us to cover or experts you'd like us to interview, email us at podcast MGMA.com or find me on Twitter at mgma daniel mgma insights is presented by declan mcgee rob ketchum and i'm daniel williams stay safe and thanks for listening